Hello, welcome to Strange Love of Movies. My name is Olivia Martinez and I'm here with one of my co-hosts, Oscar Martinez, and the special friend guest of the show, Mr. Tyler Heaton. Hello, hello. I still don't know how to pronounce your last name. All right, today we're gonna be talking about The French Dispatch, which is Wes Anderson's 10th film, and it is magical. And we're finally talking about it, right, Dad? Yes, this is many months in the making. In fact, we almost started years. (laughs) It is years, because we started this podcast at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic with the idea that The French Dispatch was gonna come out that April, and it never did. And it finally came out in October, but Liv wasn't around. She had to do something called college, and that's crazy, but priorities right um but anyway finally we have all seen it and uh, and uh yeah it is it's it's extraordinary film i mean we both saw it in october and tyler you'll be able to talk about your viewing experience in a second okay he's (laughs) he's french boy now but yeah we both saw it in theaters in october but yeah communication wise it was just too hard to do a podcast because this is a special movie to this podcast and just to us so yeah we wanted to do it in person and dad you bought the dvd Intentionally, yes. Ugh. I bought the DVD because the VHS was not available. <laughs> Laserdisc was not available. Who pays for DVDs these days? I did, yeah, proudly. It's not, not going to be on streaming anywhere, probably. I mean, most of Wes's films aren't, so. Yes. True. So, and also, remember all the extras they were going to have? No extras. No extras. No extras? But that's okay. No extras. That's kind of disappointing. But the subtitles, that's important. That yeah. is important. We'll get into that in a second. Tyler, talk about your experience of The French Dispatch. Yeah, so I saw it three times in the first two weeks it came out i saw it like on a friday i actually i had to turn in a like a midterm paper early (laughs) that i probably lost like about three points on because i (laughs) was trying to see this on friday with my roommate and then yeah i saw it uh again twice the next weekend with uh i brought different people to see it because i was like this is this is amazing and speaking of three times that's a pretty good number considering there are three main stories of this movie we Are we going to keep doing this? Are we going to keep doing this? No, I'm kidding. But, okay, of the three stories, every time you saw it, did you like a different one better or not? Uh, I I liked the first two the best the whole time, Mm -hmm. Um, but which of the first two were my favorites switched? Okay, interesting. Dad, we've both seen this movie twice, and has your opinion of the stories changed? Yes, when I first saw it, I liked the middle one the best, but then the last time I saw it, I liked the third one the best. Really? Oh, yes. that, that's a hot take. Both yes. times I've liked the first one the best. Yeah. Because I'm basic. I liked the first Actually, one. Actually, no, I'm not basic. Because <laughs> if I was basic, I would like the Timothy Chalamet one the yeah, best. Yeah, true. But I liked what? the first one the best the first time I saw it. And the second time I liked the second one the best. And now I think I still like the second one the best. Okay. Well, that's good though. We all have differing opinions. Getting into the plot. It's definitely not a traditional film. To say the least. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just three short stories plus the Owen Wilson tidbit where he, is he even an actor? Like, what does he do? He does the same thing every time. (laughs) He definitely didn't act in this one. No, he was definitely reading it from his fake little bicycle, like reading the script probably. He was just uh, wearing a beret and riding a bicycle. That's all he did. I think his exact same voice, like his normal. Yeah, Yeah, and it looked like he he couldn't be bothered to make the movie. He was really working on that bicycle, (laughs) acting like he was working on the bicycle, but... (laughs) It was kind of a weird role. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it was fine. It was very Wes Anderson-y. And I liked the cats on the roof and some of the imagery of the story, like the pimps and all that stuff. That was cool. Yeah. You know, like the past and future or present. What was it? Yeah, I did like the past and the present. Yeah, that was cool visuals. Well, and Tyler, did you say for the credits? 
to see the very end. The, the special the, scene at the very end. No way. There's a special scene. Yeah. No way. No. No, he's right. There's no. Okay. Special okay. Scene, no. <laughs> <laughs> but they show the covers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay, but the covers. It occurs to me. We'll have to watch it again because whenever the covers refer to everything that we saw throughout the film, they yes. do, right? So cool. I saw the cats. Yeah. Okay. Now that. Didn't very get that just now. Yeah, and very New Yorker vibes, obviously. If you didn't catch that, I'm so sorry. But I mean, the covers at the end are total New Yorker. I mean, I grew up looking at New Yorker covers, never reading what was inside. <laughs> but, you know, just looking at them. The New Yorker actually named this as its favorite film of the year, which I saw that and I was like, well, that was a little too obvious. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, that's appropriate. Yeah. And it's, I think he described it as a love letter to the New Yorker or something like that. That yeah, he really admired that magazine and did you hear that story where did we where were we watching that where he wanted to buy <laughs> he wanted to buy the archive of the new yorker oh yeah and it was <laughs> i think he just made bottle rocket or something he didn't have any money no money he still yeah. doesn't have that much money to buy the archive of the new yorker and they just kind of laughed at him where did we see that it was something i know what you're talking about yeah i have no idea okay but anyway so that's how fascinated he was with and, and in some ways it's the creative process the artistic process of creating a story you could see why he would gravitate toward that with his philosophy degree and all that. And every director is sentimental in their own way. And Wes Anderson clearly grew up reading J.D. Salinger, reading The New Yorker, and listening to The Kinks. Because <laughs> all of these things are just kind of in all of his movies. And this one was the clear love letter to The New Yorker. Royal Tenenbaums is a clear love letter to J.D. Salinger's works. And then The Kinks are just throughout. Because Wes Anderson's the type of guy to like The Kinks better than The Beatles and The Rolling Stones. <laughs> Right? But I think yeah. he likes the Stones better than the Beatles. Yeah, so. I'm sure. But he's just he's just too cool. Well, remember the Royal Tannenbaum's The Obsession with Children? Remember that? I think we, we covered that in one of the, the, the podcast episodes oh, earlier. Yeah. Wait, speaking of, we have every single Wes Anderson that, movie podcasted, that, so go listen to them. That's true. Uh, he, uh, he, when he was a kid, he, you've heard the story, right? He found a book in his parents' library that said how to deal with a troubled child. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty clear. He realized that it's pretty clear the troubled child is. It's him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. So getting into the story, Bill Murray is an editor of the French Dispatch, correct? Correct. And for some reason, the French Dispatch is out of Liberty, Kansas, which is kind of ridiculous and funny. And it only took Bill Murray two days to film the entire movie. Did you know that? Like, <laughs> he was in and out. My man, he's getting older. He's tired of this. But he did a great job yeah. with his parts. And I liked that line where he was like, write like you... What was it? Yeah, write... Write it like you meant to say that? Oh, yeah, no, write it so it seems like you meant to write it that way or something like that. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Just so, like, demeaning. And it, it begins with his death, and they're going to have to make the final... Spoiler alert. <laughs> Oops, but that's within the first two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going to have to make a final French dispatch because that's it. And as Willie says, no more after my death. And Tyler, you talked to me about how the beginning is a reference to a Jacques Tati film. Oh, yeah. That's actually during... Oh, wait, no. That is... Which part is that? Is no, it when the waiter... Yeah, it's at the very beginning. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's like all throughout the film, there's a lot of references to like French cinema. So like it's a, once a love letter to the New Yorker and you get that in the magazine and also just to French cinema and France in general. Wes lives in Paris now and is a huge fan of French films. And so one of the numerous references to other French films um, comes in the beginning and that's a reference to Jacques Tati's Mon Uncle. Ooh, and that accent. <laughs> But yeah, okay, so we talked about the Owen Wilson thing, kind of random, very short. 
I'm glad it was no longer than that, but it was funny in its own way, right? Yeah, I thought it was like not as funny as I wanted it to be, but I like still liked watching it. Yeah. Well, and the the full title of the movie is The French Dispatch of the Liberty Kansas Evening Sun. Mm. And that that's right there. The whole plot is ludicrous because Kansas, <laughs> middle of nowhere, there's no way they'd have a, a, a Sunday supplement based in Paris. Yeah, very good point. And then the other point, too, about journalists having grown up in that industry, it's something to be. Most journalists, they cover city hall meetings, um, you know, uh, protests on the street, whatever it is. They're very few journalists who are foreign correspondents that's an elite bunch of people and they certainly were elite in this way they're elite in their mannerisms and quirkiness you know very um that's the thing about wes anderson films we've talked about this before he's made so many he now has to make a wes anderson film whether he wants to or not it's yeah. a good point i want him to make a war movie well this is going to be a musical originally what yeah, yeah it was yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they couldn't find anything that rhymed with dispatch. <laughs> Wrist patch? That's a good one. That's a good one. That's good, <laughs> but oh, no, yeah. it was going to be a musical. I, I, and he hasn't done that, but you're right. That and a war film and other... Post-apocalyptic kind of movie. Hey. But this was definitely his most graphically yeah, violent. Yeah, it was pretty dark and the language is pretty, yeah, pretty earthy. It made sense. There were convicts. So Benicio del Toro yeah. curses like a sailor. Yeah, I guess he does. Most of his movies don't cuss a lot. Actually, speaking of like genre films, I think Asteroid City, which already is announced and has like a mostly confirmed cast list, which is... West all Anderson's the usuals. Next one. Yeah, all the usuals and some additions is going to be a Western, actually, most likely. Ooh. Oh, there you go. Yeah, they were, I think they were shooting it in Spain or somewhere in South America, and like they built like a little Western kind of town. That's going to be so fun. Hope there aren't any prop guns on this. Yeah. <laughs> Alec Baldwin vibes. He's not in it, is he? I don't think so. Okay, I don't good. think he's ever been in one of his. Okay, but good. can we get to the Benicio Del Toro story, <laughs> yes, finally? Good. Okay, so that's the first main story, and he, uh, Benicio Del Toro is a prisoner, and one of the coolest scenes of the movie is when... The actor, it's slipping my mind, but the actor who plays Zero in Grand Budapest Hotel is the young Benicio, and it's very, like, surreal because you see him grow up into Benicio in just a brilliant way. I'm not describing it very well, but it's so cool. And that was, like, those little figurative aspects of the film. Like, another one is when uh, Timothy is in the other girl, I forget her name, are on the motorcycle, like <gasps> flying into the ether. Beautiful. I think this is like the first time in any of his films that I can remember that there's like that kind of figurative, like breaking, not really breaking the fourth wall, but showing like, this is a movie. This is a movie. Yeah. Dreamlike sequence. Yeah. And that's exactly what we've talked about. You've been listening to our podcast, right? <laughs> no, he hasn't. I have not. Like that. That, yeah. Because that's exactly what we talk about. He's always <laughs> so clear that you are watching a movie this is a movie i am making this mm. is a movie i have made and mm -hmm. and and especially if you think about it all his movies they have the book the sequences the chapters and this is perfect because this is just a magazine it's the same format right where okay this is this the title of this chapter well no it's this crazy. is the title of this article and it's completely different people in each of them you know as it's opposed awesome. to sequences in their lives it's totally different stories yeah that's a good point so Benicio Del Toro, he's an artist, and he is drawing and inspired by Leah Sadu, who is a beautiful French actress. She's in No Time to Die, Correct. right? I yeah. have, still haven't seen that latest James Bond movie. But yeah, she's in it, and she's posing for him, not 
fully clothed at all. Yes. Actually, quite the opposite. Dad was like, this is the first full nudity in a Wish Anderson movie. That's exactly how I said it. Too. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. But in a weird way, it kind of works for this because she looks like a statue. Like, she looks like a literal work of art and how she, it's shot. Some of those poses she has to hold are ridiculous, but it's really cool. And yeah, he's drawing these, like, paintings that look nothing like her, but they're yeah, inspired by Very her. impressionistic. They're very pretty, though. I'd buy one. And Adrian Brody, who's in for, I think, tax fraud or something like that, <laughs> his character, who is one of my favorite characters in the entire thing, he is a greedy art dealer, and he's like, we're gonna make you big. We're gonna do it. And they write this book about him and Benicio Del Toro ends up being like the most sought after artist all because of Adrian Brody and his madness. Yeah and you know why is it about Adrian Brody? He can only be funny in Wes Anderson films. He's, no, he's not good at anything else, is he? Sorry. I, no. Wait, have you seen The, the no, Pianist? Hey. I haven't seen it. The, the Dentist, what? The Pianist. I just went to The Dentist. I did go to The Dentist. <laughs> the Pianist, I've heard he's really good in that but I don't know. Oh yeah we saw that. It was alright. Uh, okay. They're not big Adrian Brody stands, okay. but he's so funny in this movie. I love when he's he like, is. ah! Yeah, that's one thing that I really liked about his performance was that it was so, like, farcical. And, like, reminded me of, like, German expressionist films from, like, the early 20s, like, where it's just, like, so over the top to convey emotion, specifically. And True. I really liked it. Yeah. Man, cinephile took, over here. Took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, this whole story is just a cluster of... I don't even know. Oh, wait, we Tilda. Tilda, Tilda the Magnificent, yeah. yeah. Of course, yeah, she got the fake teeth and the mm-hmm. wig, and she's, yeah, this story's weird, so it's like a story within a story, and T- Tilda is narrating. And there's a diverged, like a play, that a detour into oh, a play. Oh, that's right, yeah. The play. Yeah, even when we saw it the second time, you are like, what's this? I don't remember <laughs> I, this yeah, part. I totally <laughs> forgot about that. Man, th- yeah, this story runs deep. And Tilda was the writer of the article, right? Yes. And yet within the show, she was the, not the curator, but she was related to Ma, who was the, the doyen of the, the museum. She's yeah. the one who purchased that, that great work by Moses, what's his name? Rose? Rosenthaler. Rosenthaler, yeah. And she buys this great work, even though it is a... Fresco. A fresco. <laughs> and at first you're like, wait... And he painted it on the walls of the prison, which is just so stupid. (laughs) And they end up actually taking that wall out, which I don't think is allowed, and sending it back to Liberty, Kansas for Ma. On that giant plane, and that's where he got the Steve Zizou, the little schematic. What would you call it? The stage set? I don't know. know, Yeah, very Steve Zizou vibes. Yeah, where you see the intricacies of the model and... Like a cross-section. Yeah, cross-section. There you go. That's what I'm looking for. So brilliant. Yeah, it was really, really well. And it really is his best written i mean he's such a good writer and he will win not just because my name's oscar but he will win the oscar that's my prediction he, no, i'm, I'm sticking yes it will. i, I hope he'll let you 500 million dollars okay and i don't even i'm yeah. shaking and i don't even know if he'll be nominated which yeah, he breaks will. my heart he should be he, he should, should be. be no it's great he it, should was, win. it was really on full display his his powers of even the talk of the the locally sourced pigments from the, the blood and the manure and all this stuff oh, yeah. he only yeah. used that where did he get the all the equipment yeah the so, um, but yeah, it was very well, well done. And that's one of the reasons we bought the DVD was to watch the subtitles. Because yeah. we could hardly understand some of the things they were saying because they were talking so quickly. Especially in the third story. Yeah, okay. and it's like so dense. Like often he created the characters based on different journalists and like kind of copied their styles. Right. The last story, the narrator played by Jeffrey Wright is somewhat based on uh, Baldwin. And yes. Like who's super right. dense. So. Yeah, and uh, the typographic memory as opposed to a photographic memory. Yeah. He remembers every single word he wrote which is 
I don't think it exists, really. It, maybe it does, but I don't know. It's I don't, so weird. Never heard of it. But going back to Tilda, one thing, uh, y'all weren't around. We were barely around in the <laughs> 70s. But the, he really captured uh, when she was speaking to that audience, that museum audience, about this great work of art, the colors, the yellow, that kind of orangey, very 1970s. Yeah. You know, it was, it was really, if you see some of those award shows from the 1970s, she looks just like some of these old stars in their nice gowns and with their fake teeth and all that. So Tilda can do no wrong. Yeah, She's she great. was great. She was amazing. Yeah, I really liked her a lot. And another thing about this story, uh, the cast is insanely deep and insanely stacked. And Uncle Nick, uh, Adrian Brody's uncle art dealer, is played by none other than Bob Balaban. Oh, and then King. we got Henry Winkler. Yes, <laughs> yes. Really incredible, too. Really, really good character Yeah, actors. and they do, like, nothing. Yeah, they have, like, four lines. They're funny, but, like, I love, like, it's just so awesome. That... Yeah, only West can do this. Yeah. Okay, so under the second story, we got it starring Frances McDormand, who we've seen a lot of in the past few years. Dad, you have some thoughts about that. And then we have Timothy Chalamet, and this is his first Wes Anderson film. Tyler, you really like this story, so you go ahead and take it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, it's about a, a school protest riot sort of thing, um, initially sparked over uh, a disallowance for boys to go into the girls' derm- dormitory. Mm-hmm. That's like the main um, point of contention. Um, and it's I really love this story, maybe because just like the comedically... Um, intellectual and like just goofiness of like the teenage society is sort of what I was hoping for at Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> like my, one of my favorite lines is um, they're in a cafe, the cafe that they say in Timothy Chalamet says, our slang was a mixture of philosophy jargon, hand signals and Latin. And yeah. I was just like, yeah. that's so awesome. Yeah. I missed that the first time that cracked me up when I saw it because they were making these ridiculous. Yeah, like, <laughs> and their slogan was dad, your favorite line. Oh yeah. The, uh, the kids are grumpy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, it's pretty awesome. And also the awkwardness and scariness of the Francis and Timothy relationship yeah. makes no sense. And that's what Wes is so good at, just these awkward relationships and weird ones. He's not scared to go there. I mean, we got Richie Tenenbaum falling in love with Margot Tenenbaum. They're step-siblings. That's so creepy, you yeah, know? Yeah, or Rushmore, like the love triangle there. Yes, yeah. he's not scared to go there. And he does that in this, and it's just so weird. Well, and also, like, one go back, the name of the town where they're reporting from is Ennui sur Blase, which means boredom on apathy. It's <laughs> pretty darn funny if you think about it. <laughs> that is funny. And that usually means nothing's going on, yet all this incredible stuff is going on, you know? True. And in this story, Timothy, what is exactly Lena Cordry, who is Juliet? What's her role? Like, she's the... She's, like, kind of, like, his opposite. Like, she, yeah. she kind of rebels against she's like the edge lord the edgiest edge lord of all the edge lords <laughs> and she's beautiful and her and timothy spoiler i guess end up getting together and she rides this moped around and she has this cute little helmet and yeah she does a really good job but she i've never seen her before and she's algerian i think um and french algeria is why she speaks french the french colonization of okay algeria. oh my okay <laughs> mr history over here <laughs> The hot take on Frances McDormand, she has played the same character for the last 15 years. Same person. <laughs> Three billboards, Nomadland, and whatever else, uh, whatever the heck else it was. Fargo, maybe. Fargo was a little different. Lady Macbeth, eh, a little different. 
But in between, it's the same person. And I, I wonder if the movie would have been helped a little bit if that had been played by a different person. Cause Such as you, Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet, or for instance, or even Kate Blanchett. Oh, yeah, she yep. could have done it. You know, or somebody else named Kate. <laughs> Kate Beckinsdale, is that her name? Oh, yeah, she's irrelevant, yeah. though. My cousin. Oh, he has a cousin named Kate. Oh, there you go. <laughs> anyway, but I just kept thinking of that. She's so... Just like Wes Anderson can only make Wes Anderson films, it seems like Frances McDormand can only stand in, star in Frances McDormand films. It's the same character, you know, this kind of um, older, kind of surly, kind of lonely, kind of whatever she is. I'm looking in the mirror now. And, uh, but she, um, but again, she was as good as she always is. But was she really, or was she just playing herself? Well, I wonder if Wes wrote the part for her, you know? I'm sure he did, Because, like, right? he wrote the part for, like, Timothy, basically. Yeah, but she was the same person she was in Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah. Owen Wilson wasn't. Ed Norton wasn't. Yeah. Owen Wilson was. Owen what? Wilson's always the same person. Was he even in it? No, he wasn't. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wasn't. Well, you know, um, but yeah. I, I could be wrong, but it seemed like that kind of, for me, that detracted from the second part, the second section. It's a little weaker, I thought, because of... This incredibly three-time Academy Award-winning actress. It's crazy to say that, but I think I've just seen uh, too many. She's ever exposed in a weird way. You know? I kind of agree because I think she did nothing for like so long. And then all of a sudden, yeah, I think from Moonrise Kingdom on, she's been in so much. She won two Academy Awards within three years of each other. She's like, a gangster. I mean, she is a gangster. She's a, I love Frances. We all do. But like, I get what you mean. It would have been nice to see someone else maybe. But it did... Her personality didn't make their relationship really funny. I think if she was sweeter or anything, it'd just be weirder. I don't, or no, it would be less funny. Well, that's the thing. You ever wonder his cameos, especially in the third part with um, Sersha. I always only say Sersha because I don't know her last name. Ronan. 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 Jinx. And uh, what's his name? Ed Norton. Uh, give other actors and actresses a chance, you know? Would it have killed them to let somebody else take that? But again... <laughs> It's hey, can you make this movie? Do you have they only and Elizabeth Moss was only in it for about five minutes. True. They filmed like a day or two, and it's their availability. I get it, but it's kind of it takes away from the ensemble sometimes if they're too well known. You know, I think it works just because Wes Anderson can do whatever he wants with whoever he wants, and we know that they're going to be a billion stars, and they want to be in this movie. I mean, if it was a bunch of no names. I... It'd be fine if it was a bunch of no-names, but it wouldn't be as fun, maybe. I think the reason why it works is because they're all really good actors. Like, if they were just, like, big mm -hmm. stars that weren't that good of actors... But I, I feel like almost every cameo, like, they really fit the character. Like... Yeah, I agree. Like, if it was just, like, I don't know, like, randomly, like, just pulling big names, it'd be, like, if, like, Brad Pitt was here and Tom Cruise was here and they were just kind of, like, hey, guys, <laughs> like, it would be, like, that's stupid. But they, like, really became their characters, even if they were only on the film screen for, like, yeah, five that, minutes. that's a good point, because I, I guess I'm thinking of a film, y'all may not have seen it, Terrence Malick, uh, Thin Red Line. Yeah, yeah. Where George Clooney just shows up out of nowhere, and then somebody else shows up out of nowhere. That whole movie, it's just like, yeah, oh, he's it's in like, it. Yeah, like, who's going to come out next? <laughs> I would like to see George Clooney in another role where he's, like, not a fox <laughs> in a Wes Anderson movie, and seeing Leo or Brad. I think Brad could do pretty yeah, well. Yeah, I, I don't know how Leo would do in a Wes Anderson movie. That'd be interesting. Okay, any more thoughts on the second? Oh, I know. The end of the second story is so sad. So sad. Yeah, I was sad. I always forget about that. But I really like how they put his face on a t-shirt yeah. and stuff like that because that's so accurate. Oh, one other thing that I loved about the second story was the song by Tip Top who, who was played, if you can say that, by uh, Jarvis Cocker. Oh, okay. That's okay. I think I saw his name related to really? this project. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, 
And yeah, that song with like, it's actually a cover of a, another French song by the French chanson singer uh, Christophe. Um, but that like string line is like, it's used yeah. several times throughout that scene. And I like love that so much. Yeah, I got mu- chills. The music was great. And Jarvis Cocker, you'll recall, he was in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yes. Remember, he was one of the characters oh, at, one, yes. at one point. He was like the troubadour kind yes. of guy with the yeah. banjo. Yeah. Which You're is kind of right. really weird. Yeah. Really weird. Okay, on to the third story. This is the reason why we really needed subtitles, because like Tyler said, and Dad, you said it too, the writing is just so dense. And Jeffrey Wright is the lead of this story, and he's talking to Leave. What's his last name? Schreiber. Schreiber? Schreiber. Schreiber, I think. Yes. Yeah. Leave is almost like live, which yeah. is like the nickname of my name. That's your name. Yeah, I know. But yeah, he's uh. talking to him. And I just want to ask, who would watch this interview? You asked that question when we watched it, and I told you, in France, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to have philosophers on television talking about stuff. That's so cool. Yeah, it's the craziest thing. They would have people, and they would be their little super would say, you know, their little identifier on the screen, it would say uh, intellectual or philosopher. Couldn't be America. Avant-garde, whatever. It kind of reminded me of like the long-form talk show interviews of like the Dick Cavett show, which Love always Dick come Cavett. up in like YouTube recommendations. Because they're so <laughs> right. good. Yeah. And he also, he interviewed everyone, like Jimi Hendrix, yeah. John Lennon, like Salvador Dali. Dali, the yeah. Dali one's great. That Bet, one's Bet great. Midler. No one cares. <laughs> I don't know who that is. <laughs> but the third story... Oh, it also stars our diving bell and butterfly oh, king. Oh, Matthew Almaric. Yes, he's the guy you said I probably like butchered that so much. Oh, yeah, the guy who looks like Roman Polanski. Yes. Yeah. And he does a great job. I love him. He's also used as just like small extras in other Wes Anderson films. He's really good. And this story is just so... It involves cooking and a kidnapping and Saoirse Ronan being some sort of... What is she? A showgirl? Yeah, I think she's like, I think she's a prostitute, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay, well, (laughs) yeah, okay. And there's just a lot to unpack. Well, one of the reasons I liked the third part the best um, was that to me, it it seemed the closest of um, the writer explaining what he does. You know, we recently talked about Get Back and the Beatles and how the musicians do what they do and they talk about what they do. He really seemed like um, that person, that role. Not that the others didn't, but he actually seemed like a writer. Like, and and those words were amazing. Just crazy. I don't know where and he he's come the up best with voice one. ever. Oh yeah, oh, he was yeah. so urbane and so so uh, well spoken. No question about that. And I think his performance had a really great like emotional depth. I think he had one of the most emotionally resonant performances. Like he seemed like such a sad and lonely person. Um, which I thought was really, really great. Yeah, and he's best known for James Bond. He's the CIA agent. He's the American counterpart to James Bond. And he even comes out in this last one, uh, that No Time to Die that we've mentioned a few times. And But he doesn't have much to work with there. And this yeah. is, it just shows how amazing he is because they're really good. I think he's actually going to be in Asteroid City the next one. Oh, I think good. He's confirmed for it, yeah. More exposure. And speaking of weird cameos, the third one, also Willem Dafoe's in it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. He literally just sits there. Does he say, he says like four things. Yeah, but he makes like a scary Willem Dafoe face, which he, is awesome. He what does. Is he the accountant or what's his name? The, he's got a the name. The prisoner. Doesn't he have another name? I he's don't... the accountant, but he's also got a, a name. I don't know. I do know though that like, it's kind of funny because they forget about him yeah. and he almost starves which is like not funny but it is he's like how do you as an entire police force forget about their prisoner his name is albert the abacus the abacus there we go but the the whole point of that and that story has to be the the whole all three of them are pretty ridiculous in their own way but 
the fact that he was there to cover a story about the, the police, the secret world of police cooking yeah. and this amazing legendary chef, Nescafe, whatever his name was. Mm. And it's just ridiculous, the whole, the whole premise. And then they actually go on a crime caper. And so it becomes, that becomes a sideline to the whole story. And yet it comes back and they use it to great effects to help uh, rescue the hostages. There's no spoilers here. <laughs> yeah. And so something nice. else that was really cool about the third story is... Like that, it was partially told in the form of like a Tintin esque visual idiom. Oh yes, which is awesome because like I grew up, and a lot of the people I saw it with like also grew up reading Tintin, and I feel like there's a big crossover between people that read Tintin when they were younger and people that like Wes Anderson films. So it's just like really cool to like see that kind of style into the film. You were born in this country, right? <laughs> no, do, you know what, right. do you know what he's talking about? The Adventures yes. of Tintin. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. I'm glad he knows. So good. Because you just kept saying Tintin, and I was worried Papa didn't understand. No, I wouldn't touch it with a ten foot pole, but. That's <laughs> Just me. Oh my. But yeah, also the animation's crazy because Wes Anderson's never used that before um, in a film like this. I mean, he's never used that style of animation. He oh, normally right. uses like claymation or stop motion yeah. or whatever. Puppets. Puppets. Big puppet guy. <laughs> but in this, yeah, he uses that style of animation and it saves so much money because imagine <laughs> them actually having to film that. Yeah. The dri- giant strong man on the car. That is an expensive stunt that is complicated <laughs> so they can just do it by drawing it. And I'd forgotten that the real guy, the real strong man came out. That's how quickly he goes by. If you're, you're not look- And that was part of the thing watching it the Maybe we should have seen it more times at the theater, like Tyler, because... And spent $50. Well, it was worth because, it. Because you miss so much, you're trying to take it all in. I totally miss... How can you miss this giant guy? <laughs> you know, I remember the anima- animated version of him, but I don't remember the scene, the actual big guy. And then later he comes out, too. He's at the police station, right? Yep. Another thing that I think, especially this story, since, like... The first two are already such like a sensory and auditory overload just in general because there's so much stuff. By the time I got to the third one, like, and that's the most dense writing that like it gets a little bit like hard to keep track of. And so that's maybe why I didn't like it as much at first. I just thought I was like, okay, like his narration is just unnecessarily dense a little Mm -hmm. bit. But then like after the second and third time, like I got to really appreciate like the texture of his words. Sure. Well, if you ever want to borrow the DVD, we can cut you a a discount. Thank you. Appreciate it. True. True. And near the end, the chef who is played by Steve Park he says something that's so heartbreaking. Well, I mean, it's heartbreaking to anyone who's a foodie, which is not me. <laughs> but it, if to Jeffrey Wright, it's heartbreaking because he says, like, it, it had a taste. The poison had a taste. Yeah, so there's a plot line that involves poison, and, and the chef has to taste it to prove that it's not poison. Yeah. But it is poison. And he says, I never tasted that taste before. Yeah. I love that. I love that. It's that's so great. Because cool. this is somebody who knows everything about every every recipe and they've, they've established he's such an authority and for him to not have tasted this it was almost bliss for him mm-hmm. yeah anything else or should we wrap this up because this is almost as long as the movie <laughs> well and like so many movies that it ended the way it began and it they started on uh, his obituary yes and they all wrote it together and each of them i didn't appreciate that the first time either where they're each saying a line and it sounded like something you would read, you know, Arthur Howitz or whatever, blah, 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 blah you know, mm. just the way he did it. And the very last line of the film, remember? No. Yeah. What happens next? Mm. Mm. Deep. Deep. <laughs> Deep. <laughs> and, okay, last thing, last thing, last thing. Jason Schwartzman's also randomly in this movie yeah. for a few seconds because he helped come up with the story, him and Roman Coppola, yes. but Wes Anderson actually wrote it. Right, by himself. Yes. And I really hope he gets nominated in this movie. It should win Best Picture. Yeah. 
But of course it won't because the Academy's stupid. <laughs> well, two go backs. One of them was in the, in the third section. Remember, I just burst out laughing where <laughs> that little, we didn't even mention the little kid, the kid, the son of the police oh, he's great. detective. Oh, yeah. he's, he's tapping out the Morse code to help him. And anyway, um, but the, the <laughs> it's cracking me up just thinking about it. The person who, who gets the message, an ancient concierge, a veteran of two wars, and they show this ancient guy, he's written on this little thing. Writing like, the Morse code. What did it say? I am hungry or, yeah. <laughs> or send dinner. Yeah. Or send me a snack. Send me a snack. It was the most ridiculous. It was so, that was funny. And in its own way, it's kind of like making fun of people who, oh, the French cuisine is so amazing. It was just such a, uh, you know, it's that on steroids because it's like nothing could match how great this was. Even poison, mm. they make poison taste good, you know, that mm. kind of thing. Pretty amazing. And there's a couple other really crazy cameos that we didn't talk about, like Christoph Waltz in it for like yes. five yes. minutes. A- Angelica Houston does a voice. Yes, she does. And you thought it was somebody else. Oh, yeah, I kept saying, no, she doesn't. And Dad, yeah. you're like, yes, she does. Whoa, I think it looks like a Fellini, like a descendant of the Fellini, also is has like a tiny role. That explains everything. (laughs) You know, one go back. One thing I I did... You've said go back 45 times in this podcast. Well, the other one I kept saying shout out. Remember who am I shouting out to? Nobody listens to this. (laughs) Um, Negative Nancy. Anyway, so what I liked about that, in addition to the the, the pathos involved with, you know, this youth and all this, is that they had this manifesto that he only half wrote, and he didn't even read the final version, which is great. So what does he actually believe in? That's pretty pretty darn funny when yeah. you think about it. And you think about these people who have actually written manifestos. Karl In- Marx comes to mind. Including <laughs> Livia. Well, Livia wrote one too, yeah. Wait, really? But you, yes, you wonder, in my class. You wonder if they ever read it, because like most artists, and, and uh, they, they do it because of the art, and then they move on. That's why these people who sing the same songs who get mad like Dylan, you know, looking mm-hmm. at him, right? He won't sing the same songs in the same way because he doesn't want them to be perfect. They were never perfect to begin with. And they're who he is right now, and that's how he's singing them. And it took me a long time to understand that. Hey, can't you play this song or that or whatever? They're constantly moving forward, and that's kind of an interesting thing. And in this case, this manifesto, which he didn't even... He didn't even she wrote most of it. Yeah, yeah. it's so stupid. Did you get that idea yeah. that she edited it and, and she the changed it? Yeah. Oh, it's so ridiculous. That's pretty funny. Okay. I have just two quick things to say oh about the film gosh. overall. She's got some go backs too. Yeah, well, it's yeah, just about like the film overall. We never, we didn't talk about the score, which I thought Beautiful. was incredible. Yes. I agree. Really, mostly simple, um, just piano that was really pretty, um, and was reminiscent of like some French composers like Eric Satie, which I thought was just so brilliant and so nice. And it was by Andre Desplat, who has done like the last several West films. Yeah, and this is actually one of the first movies, I think it is the first Wes Anderson movie that doesn't use really any other like, again, Rolling Stones or Kink songs or anything like that, any recognizable music, which is really awesome. Yeah, and I think it worked for this film. And the other thing that I wanted to say is that I felt like it had the most like pathos out of any West film that I think. Wow. Like it was, I think the most emotive and the most emotional. Um, and I think it had some moments of like almost transcendent, um, emotional realness and beauty that like parts were kind of, everything was just stripped back. Like I think of, um, the part when like, uh, Zeffirelli who's played by Chalamet, his parents are like in the car driving on the way back. Like it's a, I mean, it's a really gorgeous shot, but it's like pretty unadorned, pretty unfussy. And like, there's just a couple moments like that where it's like, I felt like there was more emotional depth to it than, uh, some of his other films. I probably agree, but Darjeeling is probably the most 
Yeah, maybe. I don't know. In my opinion. But I think that's a good point, Ty Ty. Well, and also the... Uh, oh, no. What? It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. You ever hear people who say that? Because it's true. <laughs> all the classic West, you know, aesthetic, the colors, the framing, it's all there, you know, in, 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 on steroids in a way because it's, it's almost... Uh, I recall when this first came out, the trailer, they said, just when you think he couldn't make another Wes Anderson film, he's made the, the mother of all Wes mm-hmm. Anderson films. And it's really... You can tell it really meant a lot to him, especially with the words. You don't, you're talking about the music too, and, and the, the way they combine together to, to tell a story, it's just amazing. It yeah. is. Yeah, and another thing that is. Oh, no. <laughs> what? Another thing that is also just amazing about this is I think that like each of the actors in it are really working like at the top of their game, and that's something I didn't really notice the first time I watched it, and was like definitely more apparent the second, third time. Like, actually, each one of the performances is crazy sure yeah and even bill murray i thought he barely came out and at the very beginning he sets the tone for the entire film True. and you're right he hardly comes out and did you want to mention the box office and yeah. it said that this movie um costs 25 million to make which is really shocking because that's not that much considering he probably just paid all of the um actors minimum yeah. i'd say I mean, and minimum wage for actors is not minimum, but you know, like not as much. But and it's made forty three point eight million, and it's considered kind of a box office failure. But that's not terrible no, at it made all. Money. It made money. I mean, a lot of half of that's from Tyler. <laughs> and then, <laughs> that's true. And then you look. Uh, if you ever stay, uh, almost like a, out of respect for all the people who made the film, stay for the credits because this one had sculptors, artists, animators. Mm. It's just amazing the creativity throughout that running throughout that film it's, and you see it on the screen and it's yeah because these sets are just amazing and the costumes are cool and the styling everything's perfect yeah so it's definitely the most Wes Anderson of Wes Anderson films until his next Wes Anderson <laughs> yeah we'll see let's get into ratings finally so out of five Type what do we want to do hmm? typewriters typewriters that's good out of five typewriters what would you give it Tyler you're our guest so five hundred percent it's so good I love it it's it's my favorite film of the year and like probably top 30, 20 films I've ever seen. When I saw it at the cinema, I, I was saying, eh, three and a half. But I saw it on DVD. <laughs> I'll give it a five as well. Yeah. That was great. Very entertaining. I will see this again. Of all the films we talk about, his are, they have that amazing quality. You want to see them again. Because you, you, you will miss something. There's an, Invariably, you'll miss something. And just like a book is different each time you read it, a movie is different each time you view it. I could see seeing this again next week or next yeah. month no, or I next agree. year. You know, once a year watching it. You know, and that's very rare. I can't say that about Last Duel or you know, <laughs> Eyes or, of Terry Faye or uh, Annette. Oh, he only saw yeah. half of Annette. Annette. He didn't even get to baby Annette. Oh, Maleficent. <laughs> oh no the one I was trying to say was malignant that horror film um, <laughs> that was terrible okay whatever I will also give this five typewriters because I really enjoyed it and like y'all said it a lot of times but it is the most Wes Anderson of Wes Anderson movies but I love his aesthetic and I love everything he does but I think it's more I, I just I like that is true but I think like it's not just like it's not it's more than that in my opinion like I feel like he stretches himself on it like he doesn't just say within the box like he pushes that box to be even wider you're right with the animation in the and just like a lot of the camera work even and like emotionally in the script like i feel like it's yeah i don't know i feel like it sets a new standard for wes anderson wow okay yeah (laughs) you're probably right 
Thank you for being our guest, Mr. Tyler. My pleasure. You were very helpful and good on this podcast, and it was nice to have an outsider's perspective. And you're the first guest of our Wes Anderson series. Oh. Go back and listen to all of our thoughts on all the Wes Anderson episodes. Some are stronger than others. Uh, I will say that. Follow us on Instagram at Strange Love of Movies Pod. Go to our website, strangelovemovies.com. And Dad, you normally like to have the last word. Well, I would say what happens next, but I can't remember what happens next. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> but thank you guys for listening, and thank you, Tyler. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.